news continues, let's hand it over to Michael Smirkanish and CNN Tonight. Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish. This is CNN Tonight. And first, a note about this time slot. As you've certainly heard, Chris Cuomo is no longer with CNN, but our job is to continue to bring you the news. And that's what we'll do tonight. You also know that America lost one of the greats of the greatest generation yesterday, former Senate Majority Leader, war hero, one-time Republican presidential nominee Bob Dole will now lie in state Thursday at the U.S. Capitol. But his passing was not the passing of just one man. It's a metaphor for the demise of America's productive and civilized governing class. Think about it. Is there a Bob Dole among us today in either party? Could a Bob Dole, a model of decorum, get nominated in his party? No way. Which is why his passing should be reason to hit the pause button a reflection point as to what's changed since people like him ran for office out of a sense of duty and obligation. Bob Dole ran to serve, not to be. Consider that Dole cast more than 12,000 votes in Congress, and while he was a loyal Republican, he was not always predictable. Yes, he opposed many of the great society programs of President LBJ, but he supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He joined forces with Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan in 1983 to save Social Security from insolvency. And it was Dole who handed Ronald Reagan a veto-proof 78 votes to enshrine Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday. In Dole's era, the way that you got to stay in Washington was to bide your time, get reelected, establish seniority, get choice committee assignments, and get things done. Today, it's a lot easier and potentially quicker to keep your job. You say something provocative. You get on cable television. You become a fundraising magnet. In short, you act like a talk show host. Why spend time trying to pass complex legislation when instead you can be a verbal or social media bomb thrower? It's hard for me to imagine Senator Bob Dole in the same Capitol building with House member Lauren Boebert who likened one of her colleagues on the other side of the aisle to terrorists. Or Paul Gosar, who tweeted out an anime murder fantasy video that depicts him killing a Democratic congresswoman. Or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who compares house mask mandates to the Holocaust. He never would have been comfortable in that environment. Of course, when the House moved to censure Gosar, GOP minority leader Kevin McCarthy singled out five Democrats and detailed their behavior, which he said didn't meet the high standard being set for Gosar. He then summarized the conduct of Ilhan Omar, Adam Schiff, Maxine Waters, Eric Swalwell, and Hakeem Jeffries. And so it goes. Dole was so much that is missing today, not the least of which is pragmatism and flexibility. His life was a canvas providing a poignant backdrop for comparison to what's gone wrong in Washington. And we don't have to speculate as to what Dole would have thought about the news of the day. It turns out that he left behind his final words, a column written by the late Senator Dole that the Washington Post says was drafted early in 2021 to be published around the time of his death. So listen to the late Senator in his own words, quote, I watched the January 6th riots at the Capitol. I thought about the symbol of our democracy consumed by anger, hatred, and violence. There's been a lot of talk about what it will take to heal our country. We've heard many of our leaders profess bipartisanship, but we must remember 
that bipartisanship is the minimum we should expect from ourselves. America has never achieved greatness when Republicans and Democrats simply manage to work together or tolerate each other. When we prioritize principles over party and humanity over personal legacy, we accomplish far more as a nation. I will count on tomorrow's leaders to stand up for what is right for America with full optimism and faith in our nation's humanity. I know they will. Powerful, right? We do have some breaking news tonight that's related to January 6th. It's exclusive to CNN. We've learned that Mark Short, former chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence, is now cooperating with the January 6th committee. That's a significant development that will give investigators insight from one of the highest-ranking Trump officials. Short is a first-hand witness to many critical events that the panel is looking into. So that sounds positive. But will Dole's final words on bipartisanship resonate with both sides of a deeply polarized Washington today? That's my question. I'm wondering tonight what you're thinking, what your answer might be to that issue. And I want you to reach out to me via social media, just like I do on Saturday mornings, and I'll do my best to share some responses as the program progresses. Thoughts now from a longtime friend of Senator Dole, John Danforth, former Missouri senator, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Senator, thank you so much for being here. Have you got it worked out yet? Whose words are they and in what context were they offered? Well, that's classic Bob Dole, as you pointed out in your commentary, Michael, which was right on. So when Dole was the Republican leader in the Senate, his idea was to get as many senators in the act as he could. And he had in the leader's office, there was a relatively small room with a large table. And when there was a contentious issue in the Senate, he would get everybody he could grab who was concerned about that issue, all the different points of view, and he would invite them to go into that room. And the room had a large table, and there were the senators would sit around it, a bunch of staffers on the outside. It was extremely crowded. If it had any air conditioning, I wasn't aware of it. It was almost an unbearable hot box. And we stayed in that room, and we hashed out the issues. And then I can remember staggering out of that room into the Republican cloakroom, and here would be Bob Dole. And he'd be sitting in a, oh, an overstuffed leather chair. And he would always say the same thing. Got it worked out yet? And that's, that was his method. Politics was about working things out and keeping people in a room until they got it worked out. And that was when government functioned, and that was when the United States Senate functioned. Senator, you heard me tie his passing to a bygone era and bring it to the current events in Washington. How worried are you about the fate of democracy in the United States? Well, I think that really one of the points of the country, right, is to keep everything together. And and that's the point of politics, and it's the point of our governmental structure. And it's, it's not just ramming things through, and it's not just taking PR positions and making speeches and getting yourself on a news program. It's about trying to hash through difficult subjects 
bring America together, keep it together, reach compromise. That's what politics is and should be about, and that's the way Madison drew it up when uh, he drafted the Constitution. I know this, I know I know this, I know this cuts close to home for you because of an endorsement that you made that you wish you hadn't made, and I see that as being directly tied. I'm referring, of course, to Senator Josh Hawley, but I see that as directly tied because of the role that he played in fighting the election outcome of 2020. That's why I ask, how worried are you about the fate of democracy in the United States? Well, I am because I think there's a political style now, and particularly in my party, to be willing to attack the constitutional structure. And of course, January 6th was an example of that, but that wasn't all of it. It was beginning even before the election of calling into question the legitimacy of the election, claiming that the election would be stolen, claiming that the president wasn't a legitimately elected president. And that's a very serious thing to do to the country. It's not just something to do to Democrats or to Joe Biden. It's, it's an attack on the whole constitutional system and on the concept that government derives its just power from the consent of the governed. So yes, I am concerned about it. And it's, it, it is a, it's a different chapter in American politics, and it's not a good chapter. So take our final 60 seconds and tell me how the, the middle, how the centrists seize control of this debate from the extremists in America. I, I wish I knew the answer to that because I, I believe that there are an awful lot of people in our country who are not on the extremes. I think that they are they don't they don't agree with Biden's say economic policies then they certainly don't agree with the style of Donald Trump and they've been pretty well cut out of politics and somehow it's important for the senator to reassert itself because that's where the action should yeah, be Yeah I happen to think it's I happen to think it's, it's where the greatest important. where the greatest numbers are if we would only seize control of this conversation. Senator Danforth, nice to see you. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What are your thoughts? Tweet me at Smirconish. Go to my Facebook page. I'll try and read some throughout the course of the program. What do we have, gang? Uh, Decency in decline in American politics. Really? The decline process is over, dude. The decline is past tense. It's done. Not on my watch. The decline has been going on for about the last 30 years. It gets timed, actually, to when Senator Dole had the power that he had in the 1980s. 60% of the United States Senate, according to the National Journal in that era, comprised of moderates like Dole. One more if we have time for it. What do we got? He endorsed Donald Trump in 2016. In the end, that's all that matters. Ah, I can't pronounce your handle, but I'll say this. He did endorse Trump in 2016, but he didn't do it in 2020. He'd seen enough. In a country that is sadly almost numb to school shootings, The developments in the Michigan case are almost surreal. The 15-year-old suspect's parents captured in a warehouse after a manhunt. Tonight, the Oakland County Sheriff is here to update us on the investigation, including questions about the high school's response to warning signs. And that's next. New developments tonight in the deadly mass shooting at the Oxford High School in Michigan. Just hours ago, sheriff deputies interviewed and searched the property of a man they believe may have helped the shooting suspect's parents during Friday's manhunt for them. 
Deputies say a 65-year-old man let James and Jennifer Crumbly use his workspace in Detroit over the weekend. He is not currently charged with a crime. The Crumblies, however, are now in jail. They're charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter for giving their son unrestricted access to the gun that deputies say he used to shoot and kill four of his classmates. Ethan Crumbly is being held in the same facility as his parents. Let's bring in Sheriff Michael Bouchard for the latest. Sheriff, thank you so much for being with me. The question on all of our minds, did they have assistance at that time that law enforcement was looking for them? Well, they clearly had assistance, but the key question that my detectives are attempting to determine factually and through evidence is, did the individual know they were wanted at the time and then aid and abet them? What did the assistance that you referred to consist of? What, what is it that he did to, to provide them with some advantage? Well, it was his space. It was restricted and secured space. So he gave them access to that space, um, it appears, before they were actually wanted, but then uh, was with them again after they were wanted. And so we're attempting to determine if he knew any of those facts or if so, when he knew it. So the part of the search warrant that they're executing and working on as we speak is to collect and seize digital devices to see if there's anything that will corroborate some of the information that he gave in our investigative interview earlier this afternoon. He is cooperating and so is his attorney. And Sheriff, as you and I speak, all three family members incarcerated in the same facility, what kind of unique dynamics does that present to to you? Um, it's something that our professional correction staff is used to dealing with. A lot of high-profile individuals and cases have gone through our facility, um, and they would all be segregated individually anyway. One is a juvenile, so he would not be around and allowed to be with adults, and the male and female populations are separated. So in any event, none of them will be interacting or seeing each other. You know that attention is now being focused on the school. Heretofore, it's been on the parents' In a hypothetical, what would have been the protocol that police would have followed if you get a report from a school that says we're concerned about a particular student? Well, that school and school district actually has one of my deputies as a school resource officer who is in that school nearly constantly. So our protocols would have triggered had they invited us in, especially to the second meeting, he would have ascertained if he was any concern, safety or threat to the school at the moment uh, based on the kinds of things that they saw and heard and that we now know, uh, we would have asked that the school have him removed from the school until we can make safe and make sure the situation is stable and not a threat or a danger to himself or others. A follow-on protocol that we have is then we then go to their home, uh, speak to the parents, and determine access and availability of weapons. So as an example, the day after this shooting, we had another school district with a different 15-year-old person. Um, The school district did, in fact, contact us. We made some interviews, determined that the student, the 15-year-old, had said threatening things, met with the parents who were super cooperative, uh, checked the house. There were weapons, and for safekeeping, we took the weapons into custody and arrested that 15-year-old. That would have been our protocol had we been involved in that meeting the day prior. So glad you spelled that out. Sheriff Michael Bouchard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir.
As I said, a lot of our attention, we've just heard the latest on the investigation, but now our, our attention shifts to the school. Prosecutors are looking into school officials' level of culpability in this. There could be much more to have been done, perhaps, and I want to bring in a school safety consultant. That would be Chris Dorn. He's the senior analyst for Safe Havens International. Chris, thanks for being here. React to what the sheriff just had to say as it applies to your area of expertise. Well, it's very troubling, of course, but it's not surprising. Uh, This is a common problem we see with schools dealing with these types of threat assessment situations where law enforcement typically are well, I shouldn't say typically, but law enforcement often are not involved as early as, early as they should be. I want to put up on the timeline uh, on the screen and, and go over some of the key points with, with a special focus on one day. So I think viewers are familiar with the basics. The 26th, the dad buys the gun. Uh, the son posts the photo of the gun on social media. The 27th, mom posts about the gun on social media. The 29th is the day that a teacher sees Ethan Crumbly searching online on his phone for ammunition, reports this. The school contacts the parents. There's no reply. Then mom texts her son, LOL, laugh out loud. I'm not mad at you. You have to learn how not to get caught. The November 30 day is the one that I want to focus you on. Teacher finds Crumbly's drawing showing semi-automatic gun, bullet words, blood everywhere, and a person who appears to have been shot twice and bleeding. The counselor takes Ethan Crumbly and his backpack to the office. The parents resist taking their son out of school that day. He goes back to class, and then comes the mayhem. What was the protocol, in your opinion, that should have been followed on the 30th of November? Well, ideally, we would have been a little bit further along in the process before we got to that point and identified some of these these things that we're seeing. Uh, But um, at the point where we have these types of threatening uh, information, that, such as the written threats, uh, the information about weapons and firearms, uh, some of those other signs, we would want to bring in what we call a multidisciplinary threat assessment team. That is to have someone from the education background looking at the situation, but also someone from mental health as well as law enforcement. So we can get those different perspectives. And that's like what we were just talking about, where that's the chance for that law enforcement officer to see there's a problem here. We can do something about it. Right. Maybe it's a mental health right. Look, I know hindsight is I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and, and I don't want to pile on, but you call the cops, right? That's typically what we hope to happen, uh, hope to have happen, but it's it's just it's very challenging for schools because we're not educators aren't designed to look for the danger, to look for the next active shooter. Their job is to educate, to nurture kids. But in a circumstance in a circumstance like this, don't you look? in that student's locker? Don't you ask what's in the backpack and then seek to inspect it? Well, hopefully by that point, we're having law enforcement present so they can be the ones to do that inspection, that search. We want to have law enforcement present to do any kind of search for weapons. And that definitely would have changed the course of this, this event. So what's the takeaway? With your expertise as one who provides guidance to schools, what, what are you saying? To look at what we have in place for threat assessment, to look at what our resources are within the district and outside of the district or whatever our school organization is, uh, when we receive these different pieces of information that we're all seeing now on a, a list, when that, when that information comes about the first time, is that information funneled to the right place? A shooting like this is a rarity, thank God. But I discussed this on radio today, and I was surprised at how many who work in a school environment call and shared anecdotally situations in which they've been called upon to make this kind of an assessment. It happens with some regularity, right? Yeah, it's fairly common. We have to keep in mind that threat assessment isn't just looking for the active shooter. 
but it's looking for the kid that's going to commit suicide. It's looking for the student who's doing self-harm behavior. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a harm reduction process. And so these things happen all the time, and it's difficult to be that one person that has to decide, is this student a threat or not? Chris, I, I should also say it seems that after the gunman started what he was doing, that the response seemed appropriate, even laudatory, on the part of the school and the students. Would you agree with that? And if not, explain why. Um, it's hard to say so far. Um, some, of the, some of the reports we've heard are concerning. Uh, students arming themselves with scissors to defend against the attacker. Um, barricading in some situations can be maybe more dangerous uh, than, than help if we don't need to barricade that door, if the door can be simply locked. Uh, so I'm really interested to see what comes out during the investigation as far as what the response actually was and how that impacted the Yeah, this, me too. This. I want to know everything. Chris Doran, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. What are your thoughts? Reach out on social media. We'll include some during the course of the program. This comes from Twitter, I think. Will we actually see any change from the parents being arrested? What does this mean for the future? Do we know if safety will win over politics? Bray, I think the easy call here, actually, I should say it this way. I think the easy call in this case seems to be that the parents acted with negligence. Whether that rises to a criminal standard, whether they were legally complicit, that's an open question in my mind. I need more facts before I can weigh in on that. But the more troublesome question seems to be, and the more difficult question seems to be, what about the school? What was the response during the course of those two interactions? And I'm not satisfied, and the expert wasn't satisfied, I'm not sure about the sheriff, that the school did exactly what they should have done in a case like this. Keep the social media reactions coming. The nation's strictest vaccine mandate is coming to New York City. Should people who have natural immunity be afforded the same privileges as the vaccinated? I'll ask a leading infectious disease specialist if that's the right call next. This is how we put health and safety first, by ensuring that there is a vaccine mandate that reaches everyone universally in the private sector. A lot of folks in the private sector have said to me they believe in vaccination, but they're not quite sure how they can do it themselves. Well, we're going to do it. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio taking the vaccine battle further than anybody, including the president. He announced today that by December 27th, in three weeks time, all private sector employees will be subject to a vaccine mandate. Unlike the federal mandate that applies to larger businesses, employees won't even have the option to opt out of the mandate through regular testing. The punishment for not complying has yet to be disclosed, but It's yet another instance where the unvaccinated are facing a new level of restrictions, even though those who have had COVID could have natural immunity. Should we be making exceptions for them? After all, a look across the pond shows just how many European nations, even the Vatican, are willing to treat people who have had COVID the same who are vaccinated. For more on this, I want to bring in an infectious disease expert, Dr. Monica Gandhi of the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Gandhi, if you were advising Mayor de Blasio, would you say to him, you need to treat those who've had COVID the same as you're treating the vaccinated? Yes, actually, I would tell him to treat the people who've been recovered from COVID the same as the vaccinated. Why? Because at this point, December 2021, we have a lot of data that not just immunologically shows us that people who have recovered from COVID have strong immunity. And by immunologic, I mean B-cell data, just just this week actually in Journal of Infectious Diseases, and T-cell data. Those are called 
memory cells. Antibodies um, will actually be higher if you've had a severe infection, maybe lower if you had a mild infection, but they come down after vaccination anyway. So it really is about what's called cellular memory. So we have a lot of immunologic data. Isn't it a very... Isn't it, Dr. Gandhi, a very individualized process? In other words, millions have gotten the vaccine and there's a ton of data as to what we can expect in those cases. But for those who've had it, how do we really know in lay terms that they're resistant to getting the virus again? Is there really a way to measure that? You know, there's not because, like I just said, the antibodies will come down given your distance from when you've been infected and also how severe it was. So what they're doing in Europe, you just showed a map, is they're accepting a PCR test of a COVID positive test in the past as saying, okay, you've had natural immunity, you've recovered, that's good enough for us. And Switzerland is the one that's looking at it the longest. They have a 365 day period after you've recovered from COVID that you count as vaccinated or you count as immune. It's pretty jarring. To see that map, I I had no idea until recent developments, but it's pretty jarring to see what an outlier the United States is. I mean, there it is again. We're listing all the the EU and non-EU countries that do it differently. Why the disconnect? Final question. Why doesn't the United States go the way of those nations, in your opinion? I can't quite figure it out. It seems a little bit political, and I'm not even sure where that, what the politics means, but I will tell you that no one in Europe isn't a good immunologist, um, and they're not good virologists there. They know what they're talking about, and I think we should make an exception for those who have recovered from COVID. Dr. Monica Gandhi, thank you for your time. Thank you. Why is a former Democratic governor and presidential candidate telling members of his party to hit the road? Steve Bullock doesn't want them quitting their jobs or campaigns, but he's going to tell us why he thinks so many on the left need to take a real detour. That's next. Willie Sutton famously said that he robbed banks because that's where the money is. The political equivalent would be to spend your time where the people are. Census data would seem to say the Democrats are on the right track. More people are moving in and around cities, and the left's playbook is now firmly entrenched try to run up the numbers as much as they can in those areas. But in our constitutional system, getting more votes doesn't always win an election. Democrats got more votes in five of the last six presidential elections, yet only won or kept the White House three times. The issue is even more glaring in the Senate. The 50 Republican senators represent 42 million fewer people than the same number of Democratic senators. That's why my next guest is imploring his fellow Democrats to, quote, get out of the city more. He's the former governor of Montana, Steve Bullock. Governor, nice to see you again. Thank you for being here. You're sounding an alarm, and some might say, wait a minute, Democrats control the House of Representatives, the White House, and the Senate on those days that there's a tie, and the vice president is there to break it. Why the need for alarm? Yeah, Michael, and it's great to be with you. The genesis of this article came right after the elections in New Jersey and Virginia. You look at it in Virginia, Almost half of the counties in Virginia were lost by Democrats by over 70 percent. 45 of the 95 counties. Go back to 2008, President Obama only lost four of Virginia's counties by 95 percent. So we're continuing to not necessarily do as well as we need to be doing um, outside the cities. And you got to show up. 
you've actually got to have issues and a discussion about things that matter in people's lives. And I think we can do that. So this was more or less the clarion to say, look, we've, got a, we've lost 900 legislative seats over the last 15 years. We've lost Senate seats in places like North Dakota or South Dakota or Louisiana or Indiana. And that's in part because we're not connecting to folks outside of cities and we need to rededicate ourselves to doing so. As I read your essay, you make the case that Democrats are out of touch with ordinary voters. And I could just hear critics saying, no, it's Governor Bullock who is out of touch with ordinary Democrats. Maybe it's time for you to cross the aisle. I'm sure you heard some of those comments. Your response is what? Yeah, and not at all. Look, you can go back and half of America hasn't had a pay increase in real terms in 40 years. It's always Democrats that are actually fighting for the middle class to actually have a better life. Time and time again, what we see is, though, that, and there's, the divides are greater and greater, but if you're voting your economic interests, your health care interests, your education interests, that's where we've always been, and that's urban and rural. And what we've got to do is make sure that we're talking to folks about the issues that they're speaking about at the bar or maybe at their own kitchen table or at the diner or across the fence line. And most of those issues are, look, am I in a safe community? Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have a decent job? How are my kids doing? Can I do something better for them than even for me? Clean air and clean water. Those are the issues that we need to be focused on. Governor, you, you say that Democrats have allowed themselves to be typecast, coastal, overly educated, elitist. What in that isn't correct? <laughs> From my perspective, Michael, all of it. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, the Democratic Party is and should be and has been the one that's going to fight for people to make sure that their lives can be improved. And that's economically the base of that is economically. So, look, I, I don't view most Democrats, certainly that I know in places like Montana or around the country, as sort of the elitists and certainly not coastal. But look, we need to do both, right? Like, this isn't an either or. This isn't a do you bring out the base or do you persuade voters that used to be vote, voting with us. We have to do both if I, we're going to be successful. I would just submit to you, I think, that many Democrats look at the most prominent of Democrats and don't see themselves. Those who have command of the microphones are not representative of the sort of people you're talking about. Nice to see you again, Governor. I appreciate you coming back. Great seeing you, Michael. What are your thoughts? Make sure you're reaching out to me during the course of social media. I'll share some coming up in just a moment. I want to show you what may be the most unusual card this holiday season. This is from a United States congressman posting for all the world to see. What do you think when you see it? John Avlon is here to show us what the attention-getting move may really mean, and that's next. Tonight, Republican Congressman Thomas Massey digging in, vowing to never delete his controversial gun-toting family Christmas photo. Remember, the picture was posted just days after four kids were killed in a Michigan school, and Massey's stance continues to fuel more outrage, but that may be the point. John Avlon is here with a reality check. Now, tis the season for Christmas cards, right? Those annual snapshots that show everything's all right on the home front, usually accompanied by wishes for peace on earth and goodwill to men. And then there's this guy who decided to deck his whole family out with weapons of war. 
along with a Christmas wish for Santa to bring more ammo. Talk about a war on Christmas. Now, if you're anything resembling a normal, sane, sentient being, you might be asking yourself, what the hell's wrong with these people? And it's a fair question, only partially answered by the fact that Dad is a Republican member of Congress. See, that's Thomas Massey from Tennessee. And whether you think his Christmas card was simply trolling or Second Amendment bravado, it did come just days after America's latest school mass shooting. Now, Thomas Massey isn't a brand-name Republican troll like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, or Paul Gosar. He's presumably a smart guy, though. He's a tech entrepreneur with a master's degree from MIT. But he's also the kind of congressman who voted against giving Capitol Police officers the Congressional Gold Medal after July, January 6th, who voted against anti-lynching laws, claimed that the military would all quit because of vaccine mandates, and tweeted, and then deleted, a comparison between vaccine mandates and the Holocaust. Yeah. And yet, he's largely flown under the radar because he's considered just a run-of-the-mill wingnut by the standards of Republicans in Congress. And that's the problem. Because the palpable weirdness of picturing your family with automatic weapons for Christmas card is a win if you're trying to play to the base or own the libs or both. And that's the situation that Massey is in. You see, his district is rated R plus 18 in the Almanac of American Politics, which means it has an 18% Republican registration advantage. In other words, the only meaningful election for him is the primary if he wants to stay in power. Now, consider the flip side, the plight of those few independent-minded Republican congressmen and women who had the courage to stand up for real conservative principles and condemn over attempts to overturn the election at the behest of a violent mob. They've all got political targets on their back now, from Trumpists as well as Democrats. For example, five of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after the attack on our Capitol represent GOP districts in states Biden won. Illinois' Adam Kinzinger decided not to run again after his district was functionally eliminated by statehouse Democrats. And Michigan's Fred Upton and Peter Mayer are both facing Trump-endorsed primary opponents. In New York and California, Representative John Katko and David Villato both won districts that Biden won easily, and now they're facing possible extinction by redistricting. While charter members of the Sedition Caucus, like New York's Elise Stefanik, look likely to emerge unscathed from the process. Think about the message that sends. Trying to overturn an election is politically safer than standing up for basic principles of our democracy. Because we need more of these independent-minded folks in Congress, not less. But all the trends seem to be going in the wrong direction. Take Texas, which gained two congressional seats after the latest census due to massive population growth in urban areas, 95% attributable to people of color. But Republicans who control the state legislature increased the number of safe GOP districts while reducing competitive and Democratic-leaning districts, drawing a voting rights challenge from the DOJ earlier today. Or states like Ohio, which voted for nonpartisan redistricting in 2018 overwhelmingly, only to have the state GOP push through an absurd 13-2 map, which is now headed to the state Supreme Court. In fact, out of the nine states that have completed their congressional maps to date, there are only 10 competitive congressional seats out of 116. That's roughly half the number of competitive seats from those same states in the last election cycle, according to analysis by Princeton University's Gerrymandering Project. Anyone with an interest in this smooth-functioning democracy should see the danger in this. After all, bipartisan margins are the way most meaningful legislation passes, from Biden's signature infrastructure bill to criminal justice reform and NAFTA renegotiation under Trump. But the numbers of competitive swing seats have declined dramatically over the past 25 years. Get this, 
There were 164 swing seats back in 1997. By 2017, it was down to 72, with safe seats skyrocketing for both parties. And it's about to get much worse. The decline in swing districts has led directly to the decline in centrist lawmakers from both parties. And that's a problem for the whole republic, not just the Republican Party. And that's your reality check. Michael? You know, John, I said at the outset of the program that in Bob Dole's era, the way to stay in Washington was to get something done. You've just underscored the point that I made because today you just need a clever Christmas card. And everything you said made sense to me with one addition. I'm sure it's a fundraising magnet as a result for him. So. 100%. Troll, play to the base. You don't have to ever worry about a competitive general election. That makes people more crazy. John Avalon, thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. We'll be right back with some of your social media reaction. So let's take a look at some of the social reaction, the uh, social media reaction that would be to tonight's program. What do we got? Uh, Smirconish, that opening segment seemed full of both siderisms. Those five Ds that Minor L called out did what they, I get it. You're saying, hey, why did you mention the Ds? I'll tell you exactly why. Because I think this partisanship is a pox on both their houses. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to say that. I'll also say that the conduct that I identified, Boebert, Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, absolutely worse than what I referenced from the Democrats. But I'm sorry, I am an equal opportunity offender. What else? I also asked you your thoughts on the deadly mass shooting in Michigan and if the school should be held accountable. Here's some response that came into that. Uh, If all other circumstances were the same and Crumbly were a black, Latino, or Asian kid, he would have been searched, suspended, expelled, then arrested for having a gun on school grounds because he's white. He was assumed not to be a threat. Tony, you might be right. Here's my reaction to it. If the circumstances that we think we know about that timeline apply to somebody who's pink, brown, or any other color, that backpack ought to be searched and the kid gets sent home from school. To me, that, that seems quite obvious. I said earlier that the case against the parents is, is certainly one of negligence, maybe a, a criminal level of complicity, but I'm really troubled by the school given the diagrams that he had and the facts that have come out so far. So we'll stay tuned. One more if I've got time for it. I think that I do. No, schools have kids all the time with violent and gun references. They were taking the proper steps. It had all happened fast. Ethan told them the drawings were a video game that he was designing. They did their best. I'm sure they're heartbroken and suffering. Punish the parents. Hey, I am sure that all those folks in the school community are hurt and are suffering. And I'm sure that those in the guidance counselor's office who met with him uh, are apoplectic about all this. But we still need to zabruder the chronology of what went on here, right? And on two successive days, what's unclear to me is whether it was the same teacher who made the report But in two successive days, you had concerns that were being raised about this young man, one searching for ammunition, the second with bloody images. And you can't just take his word for it that he says, oh, I I wish to someday design, uh, uh, you know, video games. You also weighed in about our electoral reality. I think I've got time for this. This is fun. Thank you. Electoral reform is seemingly the only solution. Open primaries and ranked choice voting would be a good start need to create an incentive structure to move politicians away from the fringes. All of that is true. Gerrymandering is playing a role. Media polarization, the biggest driver of all. And there's something else going on out there. We're self-sorting. We are making a conscious choice to live with the like-minded. That's not gerrymandering, and that's equally problematic. 
Well, thank you for watching. I will be back here tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.